Okay, so welcome to our session today on wise speech. <coughs> this is the third step of the Eightfold Path, and this is marking the beginning of the month when we'll focus on wise speech in our practice. And so, so it's not expected that you came here having done the readings or anything. This is sort of a set up and a warm up for you to have some ideas in mind as you as you look at them. And I'm here very happy to be teaching with G today. I think some of you know him. He's been around for a long time. And <laughs> in a good way. In a good way. And see, is that wise? I don't know. I'll take it well. And actually I um Partly he's here because his schedule, uh, this was a good month for him. Um, but I'm actually glad it worked out this way because wise speech is something I value about you. So I think you're mm. skilled at that. <coughs> so it'll be a good modeling for all of us. And I'm also amazed that wise speech happens to be this month when so many of us are encountering family and other things. And so this is a very timely topic to have at this time, and as we'll talk about, timeliness is one of the qualities of wise speech, so it all works out. But we'll start now with some meditation to get us settled in. So begin by taking a posture that is upright and also relaxed, settling into your seat a bit. If you're comfortable doing so, you can close your eyes. Maybe taking a couple of long, slow, deep breaths, really filling the lungs, and then on the exhale, inviting some ease through the body. Internally, bringing the attention to the seat that you're sitting on, your seat against the chair or the cushion, legs or feet against the floor. Just feeling the stability of the base that you're sitting on, feeling some sense of balance. You can even shift a little bit or rock a little bit to feel like you're really in a balanced central position. Perhaps tuning in to the simple sensations of the breath. very basic series of sensations makes up the breath. The touch on the nostrils or the upper lip, a feeling of tingling or movement through the back of the (coughs) nose and throat, maybe down into the chest or even the belly, shift of clothing against the skin, In breath, 
characterized by increasing tension, rising of the diaphragm, then exhalation is more relaxation. Just giving the mind a simple home. Probably there are thoughts or emotions in your experience also. So just opening, noticing there what's happening in the mind. Maybe experiencing the thoughts or emotions almost through the breath. Breathing through a sense of busyness or anxiety or sadness or peace, joy. One thing we often notice in the mind is some words. Not everyone thinks in words, but almost everyone thinks in words some of the time. This is inner speech. So if it's of interest... You may wish to note the inner speech, its tone, any feelings in the body that go along with it. Whether it's rapid or slow, short, maybe less the content of it than the contour of it in some ways. The whole phenomenon of inner speech, what is that experience? there aren't so many inner words at this time, then mindfulness of the body is fine.
meeting any inner speech with openness and curiosity. Kind awareness of whatever is arising through our thoughts. We may notice that they shift or change over time. What is it like to simply meet our inner landscape with curiosity and openness rather than believing every thought or judging every thought? Simply opening and experiencing this inner world
that inner speech anybody have any inner speech or were your minds were all just completely silent oh okay (laughs) yeah that's good so why speech Um, I want to first put in the context of the overall (coughs) eightfold path that we're studying so the first two factors which were wise view and wise intention, these are sometimes said to be one segment of the path. Those two are called the wisdom part of the path because they relate to um, how the mind sees the world. Do we see the world in a way that's wise and helpful and skillful or not so well? And how are we directing, orienting and directing the mind? And then those open into, and this is not an accident, that they flow from each other, they open into another section of the path that's called the ethical conduct or, uh, yeah, the ethical conduct section, the sila part of the path. And this comprises wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood, which are the next three that we're going to study. And it's, you know, it's understood in context that the way the mind is has a big effect on then what we express into the world, how we speak, how we act, how we live. And so there's this natural flow. You can understand that once we've oriented our mind about how we're seeing things and then set some intentions, and we talked about the wise intentions last time of letting go, of loving kindness, and of compassion, that's going to then influence what we speak and what we do. Now that I've said the the E word, ethics, I need to also place that in some context in that um, from the monotheistic or Judeo-Christian perspective that many of us encountered, and even if you didn't, uh, you're in a society where that's in the culture, and so we've tended to absorb some of those notions. Uh, Ethics or morality often has a different flavor to it than what's meant in the Buddhist context. So I just want to be deliberate about pointing that out. Um, Often we may have heard these things framed in terms of right and wrong or good and bad, good and evil. And in fact, even sometimes the steps of the path are called right speech. You'll see that in some of the emails. But it's not meant in terms of right and wrong. That's actually not the division that's made in Buddhist ethics. Rather, the division is between skillful and unskillful, leading toward or away from suffering, or leading toward or away from freedom, essentially. And so there's, there's little sense that if you're not acting well or not speaking well, that you're a bad person, or that there's a ledger somewhere, and the good and the bad are getting marked down, and then there's going to be a totaling up later. Um, I say that a little bit humorously, but 
check if that's maybe in the back of your mind. And we, we do that. Uh, I, f- I find myself, for example, trying to make up for things. <laughs> uh, you know, if I've done something that um, I think wasn't as good, I'm super careful the next time. Okay, that's probably there's some wisdom there to you know make an intention to act in a better way. But I have to be careful in my mind. It's not a canceling out. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. And so just to be aware that this is something that I don't feel I need to put a lot of explanation into because we're going to explore it in our own practice. But the sense is, uh, from the wisdom part of the path, we've oriented toward one toward the Four Noble Truths. There's suffering and there's a way to end it. There's suffering, it uh, has a, uh, conditions that bring it about. There's a possibility of ending it and a path for doing that. And that's the, that's the orientation, that's the choice I want to make with my life. I want to move toward freedom, I want to move toward the cessation of suffering. And so then the natural question is not, well, who's, who's good and who's bad? It's like, we're, that doesn't fit into the context. The next question is, how do we do that? What's going to be skillful? What's going to move toward that aim? And what is not? And that's what's called ethics in Buddhism. Sila, action, or you know, the way we act and are in the world. So these three factors of speech, action, and livelihood are particularly relational. They have to do with how we interact with other people to a large part. But they also have an internal dimension. All of them have an internal dimension, and that's what I emphasized in the meditation. Maybe just for one more bit of context before moving on, I'll say that the ethical conduct section of the path that we're just starting now feeds naturally into the third section of the path, which is effort, mindfulness, and concentration. That's the meditative development, the mental development part of the path. So there's these three components. There's sila, or conduct, there's development of the mind, and there's wisdom, or understanding. And those three are are all mutually influencing each other and also flow in a logical progression. What we do with our actions and our speech and our life has a big effect on how it is that we're able to sit on the cushion and our experience when we sit on the cushion. The classic example is if you've just robbed a bank, it's very hard to get concentrated. You know, when you sit down, it's not going to be a good session. So that's skillful and unskillful. If you want to develop your mind, we behave in ways that help us to sit peacefully when we're on the cushion. It's our choice. So I mentioned that each of these has an inner and an outer dimension. I'll just spend a few minutes on inner speech, since that's what we just looked at in the meditation, and that's the transition from the more inner wisdom parts into the more external action in the world parts. So inner speech does count as speech, skillful or unskillful, wise or unwise in in the mind. And sometimes we think, um, you know, it doesn't matter too much. You know, someone walks in and I think, wow, they have a really awful sweater on. Uh, but I don't say it. <laughs> you know, that's, and it's true in a broad sense. But I, I have a story about this, which is that there was a, a teacher who, in India, who had a group of students and he sent them off into the marketplace. You know, he was a guru type teacher, so their job was to do what he said. And he said, go into the marketplace and 
you know, very, you're supposed to be well-trained spiritual practitioners now. You can be subtle. You can be blend in. Go and steal something, but make sure that nobody sees you. So, and then come back, bring it back for me. And so they all went, and they came back, and none of them were pursued, so they managed it. And but all and all of them had some little thing that they picked up from the marketplace, except for one. One student came back empty-handed, and the teacher turned to that student and said, well, "How come you didn't obey what I said? You didn't do what I told you to?" And the student said, "I I did." You said that we had to go and steal something such that nobody would see us, but I would see it. (laughs) And the teacher said, he's the only one who did it right. So, you know, there's the sense of, we'll see it. We'll see our action. We'll hear our speech. And that matters, too. That matters. And, of course, our inner speech, even though it's, you know, something that we may um, not react to. It has ways of leaking out into the world in how we interact. I know if I'm in an irritated mood and all of my thoughts are about that's not working, that's blah, 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 I don't like that, I'm more likely, when the opportunity to speak arises, I'm more likely to have an irritated comment. So maybe I'll add... Immediately after saying that, I'll remove a little bit of the stress in that we don't really have total control over what arises next in our mind, in case you hadn't noticed. So it's not that, you know, if irritated thoughts are going through your mind that somehow that's bad. We have to continually look at this good and bad mindset. Yeah, so, you know, inner speech is something to be mindful of, to be aware of. And just as in our outer behavior, when we're mindful, we're more likely to gradually become more skilled in the way we're behaving. If we're just behaving blindly with no awareness, um, most likely we'll just keep behaving that way. But if we have mindfulness, then we start to notice, oh, this doesn't feel quite right, or oh, if if I'm careful, I'll realize what I should do in this situation. In the same way, mindfulness of inner speech slowly changes it to be usually a little more benign. Um, you know, if we're not noticing our inner speech and just letting that voice, commentator, judge, whatever, sometimes coach, <laughs> go on and on, um, it'll just run along habits. But if we observe it, over time it tends to uh, settle out, or at least we gain the ability to not be speaking from that place if it's not being skillful at the moment. This is a huge area of suffering for some people. That's another reason I I like to highlight inner speech, is that if we're depressed, that's a period of really difficult inner speech, blabbing at us all the time, or um, anxious another time when the inner speech is particularly challenging. So being aware that that's a dimension where mindfulness, and hence kind awareness, is appropriate can really reduce the suffering of having to listen to that loudspeaker. Mindfulness helps helps us to work with it. Another thing I found valuable to check in inner speech is uh, who that voice might belong to. Was it implanted there 
uh, by someone else. I found a lot of the voices in my head are not that original. They came from family, from colleagues, from partner, whatever. Um, So just being aware that not all of them uh, were put there by us, if you want to think in that way. Jack Cornfield gave names to his inner voices. We have a lot of them. So he gave them names. Some of them he gave like actual names, like Gertrude and, you know, things that seemed appropriate. And other ones just had names related to their function, you know, commentator or whatever. And he, he, he started bowing to them all. And when they would speak, he would say, oh, thank you for your opinion. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, you know, this was a way of not getting irritated with the inner voices because that's another thing that can happen when we start looking at inner speech is to say, oh, this is terrible. Uh, That should stop. That one should stop. Stop. Shut up. Don't speak that way. Uh, That's not very helpful. So, you know, finding ways to make friends with some of these, some of this inner speech. Tan Jeff talks about mind as a committee of many different people, and if we've been in meetings, we know that sometimes it's like that in the mind, also with a lot of people offering opinions. Gil says he has a lot of lawyers in his mind mm-hmm. explaining why things should happen and why things are justified and so forth. So you can get the flavor. That's partly why I asked, what is the tone? What is the flavor of that? those inner voices? Sometimes we would speak to ourselves in ways <coughs> that we would never speak to somebody else. You know, it's really kind of, I don't know, tender a little bit to think, wow, I would say that inside. I would never say that to to my friend, for example. I'm also speaking fairly cavalierly about inner voices. This does not have to do with mental health, um, you know, where hearing voices is considered not appropriate. I think as mindfulness meditators... We're probably aware that they're there and that they're worth being mindful of. Okay, so there are various qualities of wise speech that are laid out. Uh, Not so much because they're the absolute definitive way to divide up wise speech, but just that it's nice to have a sense of the different dimensions that we might look at in our speech or in other people's speech. And so that one result of this, you know, not being an attempt to, to exactly categorize, is that there are many different lists of the qualities of wise speech, several different, and they tend to overlap a little bit. But I just want to point out that you'll encounter several um, in the readings that are coming up and also in uh, the suttas, the discourses of the Buddha, So I just want to name um, the different qualities of wise speech that are offered to us. In the the discourses, um, they're most often said to be four qualities of wise speech, which are that it is true, beneficial, timely, and kind. And sometimes kind is um, broken into up into two, so you end up with five qualities. You'll see that on Gill's, um, Gill's PDF about wise speech, if you read that, where kind is, changed, is, spoke, is broken into 
kind words and spoken from a place of kindness. So, but I, to me, those are fairly similar. And I'll also talk about a little uh, nuance of that later in this uh, talk. Kindness is um, fairly nuanced quality in, in speech. So true, beneficial, timely, and kind is one set. And then another set of four, slightly different, but some parallels can be drawn, is mentioned in the readings. Um, and these four qualities are based on what are called the ten skillful actions, and four of them relate to speech. And so in this list, why speech is speech that avoids four things. It avoids being false, being slanderous, being harsh, and being idle chatter, <laughs> or not, you know, not useful gossipy kind of. That also includes gossip, but basically useless speech. And so there's, you know, they map together. Uh, not being false maps onto being true. Not being harsh is related to being kind. Not being idle chatter or gossip is related to being beneficial. Timeliness is not included in the second list. You'll encounter these in the reading, so if you didn't exactly write them all down, that's okay. Um, but you see the you see the domain broadly that's covered. So true, beneficial, timely, and kind is, is where we'll focus today, those four. And uh, G will talk more about the first three, and I'll focus uh, a bit on kind speech. The reason I wanted to look at kind speech is that that's in some ways the transition from intention because the, remember the wise intentions of letting go, loving kindness and compassion, loving kindness and compassion as intentions will lead to speech that is kind and connecting and feels easeful to the other person often, feels useful. So kindness... And again, this is another one that applies internally and externally. We can check, is our inner speech kind? And if it's not kind, in the same way that we would maybe redirect our outer speech to veer towards something that's a little a little softer, in the same way if we're having a harsh inner voice, just mindfulness. You know, Obviously, pushing it aside isn't going to help, but just some mindfulness of, oh, could I speak to myself a little more kindly at this moment? That one has helped me in a number of cases where I made a mistake and my mind started to veer toward, oh, that was bad, I can't believe I did that. Wait a minute. You know, feel the, if there was something that I had you know, made a mistake on, then okay, feel that that was the case and do I need to do something about that. But I can stop there. That was one action. It doesn't relate to me as a person. So we can watch where the speech changes from commenting on our actions to commenting on ourself. That's where it becomes unkind. One place it can become unkind. Another thing we can do to shape our speech to be kinder is to check whether there are barriers to that or the opposite of that, like check whether aversion is present in our mind before we speak. Bhikkhu Inalio has a lovely practice where um, when he's composing emails, 
he's a professor, so he does a lot of email communication. He always makes sure that his mind has no hindrances before he does his email. Isn't that a great practice? So you know the five hindrances um, include aversion. And so he just checks. Does my mind have any barriers in it to being wise, basically? And then once once he's clear that he doesn't have any sense of aversion or, or hate or irritation, then he goes ahead and writes the message. And he can, you know, he can be honest. He can be critical. He guess, you know, he might have to say to a student, "Well, this paper, um, you had some strong points, but then these points weren't so good." As long as he's saying it without aversion, it comes out in a way that's helpful. You know, in is wise speech. Just recently on a retreat at the the ISC retreat that was held last week, um, one of the teachers on the teaching team received a note that was uh, somewhat confrontational, and you know, the teacher was surprised. Who knows who knows what space the student was in when they wrote it? But it was like, huh. And there was, and this response was needed. So this teacher um, wrote the note three times <laughs> to try to reply uh, to this confrontational note. And then, when the version finally seemed okay, the teacher went and checked it with one of the, um, uh, with the retreat mentor, uh, who was kind of the person who, uh, one of the resident volunteers at IRC who serves to help run the retreat. And so went and checked with with him. Does this read okay? So I thought that was very skillful, you know, uh, to really be careful. Is this, is this coming out correctly? Is this going to potentially have some, any negative impact? So kindness is different from niceness. This is an important point in wise speech. Because we can um, move into a space where we're more interested in being nice than being kind. Nice being pleasant, um, just what the other person wants to hear. You know, when we're catering in that way, we begin to fall out of some of the other qualities of wise speech. So we may start to say things that aren't true if we're trying to be really, really nice. Or we may say things that aren't particularly beneficial or helpful for the other person. We could say something more helpful, but we pull back and just say what's nice. And so um, the Buddha even wrote a sutta about this. And he said, he talked about words that are agreeable and pleasing to hear. And he said, you should speak words that are agreeable and pleasing to hear if they match the other three qualities of being true, beneficial, and timely, and if you want to speak words that are not going to be agreeable and pleasing, one does so when it's the right time. So if it obeys the other three, uh, there can be times when we say things that are not agreeable to other people. Um, This is a judgment, this is a wisdom call, and there aren't necessarily hard and fast rules, but I want to give a a nice example of this that was, it often happens between teachers and students, this kind of speech. Greg Scharf tells a story. He's now a a Vipassana teacher, but this is a story from either his first, maybe his very first retreat, or maybe second, but very early on. And, you know, he was just 
learning about how to be on retreat and he was trying so hard to be mindful and be silent and be you know move slowly and uh, and he felt like he was just screwing all of that up and everybody else looked so much better and so he came into his interview and he said to the teacher I feel like I'm the only one here who's not being mindful um, you know the usual often people have this feeling on retreat and the teacher looked him right in the eye and sort of sat forward and said, what makes you so special? <laughs> and he, he said he was so glad that the teacher had said that. It was, it was not necessarily pleasing. She didn't say, oh, it's okay. Everybody else is having a hard time too. You know, I'm sure it's not just you. Instead, she said, what makes you so special? And it just popped the whole bubble. You know, he just stopped. He realized this is a very self-centered way of thinking. Oh, poor me. I'm so bad. I'm not doing this right. And it was just like all of that was gone because that's not helpful in her speech. So what she said was very beneficial to him to stop that train. And she judged correctly that it was timely for him to hear that, that he was not going to get angry or upset. She felt that there was enough rapport. So he was very grateful for that. So I hope this gives a little taste that even that one little dimension of kindness of speech has layers to it, and it's really interesting practice to explore. And so I find this to be generally the case with the ethical practices, is that it's easy to kind of say, okay, you know, ethics, I got that in church when I was six years old. I've been irritated with it ever since. Whatever relationship we have to that word... Uh, take it on differently if you can in this in this Buddhist framework because it, it really goes deep and it, it shows a lot about how our mind works to look at what we're why we're doing what we're doing what it is that we're doing what impact it's having how that feeds back this is uh, this is an area for a lot of interesting exploration and wisdom so I hope you'll find this to be a an interesting month in that regard And there's more to say about speech. That'll be the second half. But for now, we're going to have a chance um, for all of you to talk in small groups about a couple of questions that, uh, that I'll give in a moment. Why don't you arrange yourself into groups of three? Is that going to work? Let's see. We have two mentors here. So three, six. quite. We have 20. So groups of four. How about five groups of four? And I'll give you the question when you've you've done that. Okay, so in this case, each person will have a couple of minutes, two minutes to talk. And the question... Oh, let me mention also that this is a good time for wise listening also, which is another dimension of wise speech is to listen in a way that we're not planning what we're going to say next or um, commenting internally on what the other person is saying. See if we can just receive what's going on. And the question for each person is, describe briefly a time when you spoke kindly in a situation where you could have spoken with anger or irritation. 
So something came up, but you managed not to say it. Instead, you said something kind. So describe that briefly, just enough that people get the sense of what the situation was. You don't need to go into a long story. And the focus is, what did that feel like in your body and mind? Like, what was kind of the inner process of saying something kind at that moment? Describe briefly a time when you spoke kindly in a situation where you could have spoken with anger or irritation. What did it feel like in your body and mind? Maybe the person whose name is alphabetically first can go first. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.